This morning, again, as we have turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, wanting to look at the opening sentence of the Apostle Paul yet again this Sunday. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. I've entitled the message, God-Centered Joy in Giving. And as I read the text, I trust you'll see that emphasis in the midst of uh, this opening sentence of the Apostle Paul, the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's the way that it reads. We want you to know, brothers, sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Nobody likes to uh, listen to somebody talk about money. That is, unless somebody's telling you how to make more of it, or how you can save more of it, or how you can make different investments that'll get a much greater return, or how you can enjoy your money more, then we are all ears. Tell me more. You have my focused attention. But talk about spiritual things. The kingdom of God. The church of Jesus Christ. Start talking about a church budget. Or stress mission giving. Or invite people to be increasingly generous with their money. Or call believers to live out Christian stewardship on every level. Then we say, I don't want to hear that. I don't come to church to listen to the pastor talk about money. And all of a sudden, the response is very different. Now, in a sense, I understand that reaction. Because over the years, all of us, I suppose there might be a few exceptions, but the vast majority of us, at least, have heard sermons where somebody has tried to guilt us into giving. I was trying to think of an analogy to this. My wife and I have both commented on this. It's sort of like those obnoxious commercials put out in the winter by the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, you've seen them, those commercials with those sad-faced dogs. You wonder sometimes if it's staged. I don't know. But then you have the whiny narrator uh, trying to sound as pathetic and as concerned as possible. And what, what happens is uh, the ASPCA does raise money, by the way. Um, but they employ the techniques of guilt and emotional blackmail to get it. And so how many people are turned off by those manipulative techniques? We have comments like, oh, not that commercial again. And you're tempted to change the channel, go get something to drink in the kitchen, push the mute button until that is over with. And you think about in a church setting, how many times in a church, in a message or in a talk, there's been kind of manipulative techniques to try to get people to give more. And guilt can work in a church setting. 
I mean, it's not biblical, uh, but it can work. It works only for a short time. And in the long run, what happens with folks is, you know what, I'm going to push the mute button or I'm going to change the channel altogether. How different the approach of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthians, rather than trying to guilt the Corinthians into giving, if I can put it this way, he's trying to grace them into giving. And as we started looking at this opening sentence, which runs from verse 1 through verse 6, as I said last week, Paul liked to write long, complicated sentences. As we started looking at this opening sentence of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, here's the point that I made last Sunday. This was the focus of the entire message, is that God's grace is always the foundation, the root, the inspiration, the fountainhead of all true Christian giving. And we notice these verses in Paul's first sentence. We notice verse 1 where Paul says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then we noticed verse 4, still the same sentence. He speaks about the Macedonians begging us earnestly for most of our versions translated favor, but it's the same word translated everywhere else in the Bible as grace. Same word. The Macedonians begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then we notice verse 6, we're still in the same sentence. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. And so you can't miss the point. As Paul begins two full chapters on the subject of church budgets and offering and missions and giving, Paul starts it and he roots everything that he's going to say in this matter of grace. True Christian giving is always rooted in, it is always motivated by grace. It's never rooted in guilt or you have to and you better and you should. True Christian giving always springs from grace. I want to this morning turn to a second point in this opening sentence, and it's simply this one, is that true Christian giving is marked by a joy that transcends a person's difficult circumstances. And I draw your attention to verses 2 and 3 in our text. Paul, speaking of the Macedonians, what does he write? He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Now to feel the force of Paul's words, need to understand a little something about the city of Corinth and a little something about the province of Macedonia. If you're not familiar with geography, Corinth, the ancient great city of Corinth, was located in what is southern Greece today. And Macedonia, the province, the Roman province of Macedonia, is located in what is northern Greece today, if you were to look on a map. And so in the province of Macedonia were all those wonderful New Testament cities. The city of Thessalonica, Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. You have the city of Philippi, Paul wrote his wonderful joy-filled letter to the Philippians. There is the church of Berea, where the Bereans examined the scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught was so. And so you have these wonderful Macedonian Christian congregations. Now, Corinth and Macedonia were not a great distance apart, really. 
Uh, if you were to go by car today from the modern Greek city of Thessalonica, and uh, you were to travel south to Corinth, it's a little bit over 350 miles. That's about the length of the trip, and you can drive it in about six hours. Now, 350 miles 2,000 years ago was a little bit of a different deal. But 350 miles, it's not thousands of miles apart. Uh, but the Christians in Macedonia lived in a very different world than the Christians in Corinth. The, the Christians in Corinth, the, 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 the congregation there was largely a wealthy congregation. Because Corinth was a very wealthy, it was a cultured, it was a cosmopolitan city, it was a great sports center of the ancient world, and so many of those who were members of the Corinthian congregation lived in the exclusive suburbs. They had very nice houses, they had three car stalls for their garage, they had a boat next to it. Uh, they had very wonderful jobs, they had every amenity, they had all the luxuries in life that uh, first century Roman life afforded. And so they lived in beautiful homes, all the luxuries, everything you could ever want, um, but they weren't persecuted at all because they sought to blend in with their culture. And so unlike believers, most everywhere else who were persecuted and ostracized and pushed aside by family and friends, that wasn't the case with the Christians in Corinth. They lived very comfortably, and nobody really said a crosswise word to any of them. Now contrast that with Macedonia. Macedonia was an area that wasn't quite as rich in resources, in finances, in business opportunities as Corinth was. Now, Macedonia was not some kind of economic wasteland, not at all. But the Christians in the Macedonian churches were not wealthy to begin with. A lot of blue-collar workers, a lot of folks who ran a, a small business, made a good little income off of it. And so they were not wealthy to start with. They just lived in ordinary places, ordinary homes, ordinary simple neighborhoods. But because of their testimony for Christ... The believers in Macedonia had suffered financial reverses and they had suffered losses of various kinds. And so when you put it all together, they weren't that well-to-do to begin with and then you suffer because of your faith all kinds of financial reversals. The Macedonians, unlike the Corinthians, didn't have a lot of disposable income. And so when Paul writes to the various Gentile churches, because you recall he's raising money for the churches in Judea and Jerusalem who are poverty-stricken, facing severe persecution, lost their businesses, homes, family relationships. And so he's going around to the various Gentile congregations to raise money to send to Jerusalem, to send to the Christians in Judea, just to help them get by for another several weeks, several months by providing resources for them. And so how are the various Gentile churches going to respond to Paul's plea for funds? Well, let me answer the question by putting Macedonia and Corinth in a modern context. So let's use our imaginations. Let's suppose Paul lived in our day. And let's further imagine that there is a severe famine in East Africa. Some of us have been there. Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania. So there's a severe famine in East Africa. The Christians there who only make a couple dollars a day barely get by as it is. There's need to raise funds to help them because the situation is dire. 
And so Paul decides he's going to raise funds to help the Christians in East Africa. And so he travels around in the United States to various churches asking these congregations to donate funds to help brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. And let's imagine, because I grew up in Minneapolis, I'm going to use Minneapolis as an illustration. Those of you who have lived there, those of you that are familiar with the cities will know exactly what I'm talking about. So Paul goes to the Minneapolis area. And uh, he goes from church to church in the metro area laying out the needs for funds. And so he goes to churches in the poorer areas of Minneapolis. He goes to the north side of Minneapolis and speaks at some of the churches there. He goes to the near south side. He goes to Lake Street where George Floyd was killed. Not the best of neighborhoods. And he goes there and uh, speaks in some of the churches on the near south side of Minneapolis. Then he goes to some of the poor inner ring suburbs like Brooklyn Center. And then he decides he's going to head out to the western suburbs of Minneapolis. The suburbs of Plymouth and Minnetonka and Edina and Eden Prairie. Very wealthy suburbs. And much to Paul's surprise, when all the offerings come in, the poorer churches on the north side of Minneapolis and those on Lake Street are more generous than the churches in Minnetonka and Edina and Eden Prairie. That's our text. And the issue is not, why didn't the church in Corinth give more? Or to modernize it, why didn't the churches in Minnetonka or Edina give more? The question is, why did the poorer folks in Macedonia and those who live in North Minneapolis give so much? That's the question. And the answer is clearly laid out in our text for us. And what is it? Namely that the Macedonians, you notice I highlighted the phrase on the screen, had an abundance of joy. That's what made the difference. And what was the root of their joy? What was the source of that joy? Simply put, their joy was not rooted in things. It was not rooted in how large their bank account was. Their joy was rooted in God. In fact, what does Paul say? The believers in Macedonia struggled with extreme poverty. You notice I highlighted those words on the screen as well. And so there is an abundance of joy, that's one end of the spectrum, coupled with extreme poverty on the other end of the spectrum, and they were more generous than the Corinthians. And it's because those believers had experienced what Jesus said to his disciples. John chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It was the presence of God. It was the presence of Jesus Christ. It was the joy that comes in the heart, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These things have I spoken to you, that your joy may be full. They had experienced what the psalmist writes about in Psalm 16 and verse 11. Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And out of that abounding joy, the Macedonians, they took seriously the words of Jesus found various places in the Gospels. For example, Luke chapter 12 and verse 33. Sell your possessions, Jesus says, 
and give to the needy. And by doing so, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. It was out of that abounding joy in God through Jesus Christ that they took seriously Jesus' words in the book of Acts. Paul quotes them. Where Paul says in Acts 20 and verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Why do you try to earn more money? It's so you have more to give away. Don't miss that point in this verse. I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so understand Paul's words in this text. When it comes to the Macedonians giving, what's the first thing that happened? We focused on it last week. Grace showed up in Macedonia. People were drawn to faith in Christ. They were saved. They were converted. Their lives were changed from the inside out. And the next thing that happened, so grace showed up. It enters their hearts, enters their lives, transforms them. The next thing that happened is severe affliction came against them. Dire poverty. Because they stood for their faith, they let their testimony be known, and they're persecuted for it. I, I want to give you an example of what Paul is talking about uh, as he writes to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, one of the Macedonian churches, by the way, that Paul is commending in our text. I want you to notice these several verses from First Thessalonians. First of all, notice verses uh, 6 and 7 from chapter 1. Paul says, you received the word in much affliction with joy. Notice those two things together. Same as in 2 Corinthians 8. You received the word with joy. Oh, and affliction came along with it. Joy in the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Achaia, by the way, is the province where Corinth was located. Among the Macedonian churches, the Thessalonian church stood out in a magnificent way. And this is striking. Notice chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now you think about that. What is Paul doing? He's raising money for the Christians in Judea who are suffering because of their faith. And Paul says, you understand it all too well because you're suffering in your town from your neighbors, same thing. And you read that and you say, okay, if they're going through the same thing, don't they need an offering taken for them? Don't they need help too if they're going through the same things? Shouldn't an offering be taken for them rather than them sending the money elsewhere? But they didn't look at it that way. The Thessalonians didn't look at it that way. They raised funds, even though they understood firsthand what was going on in Jerusalem and Judea, they raised funds to send away. And then you notice chapter 3 and verse 3, speaking about sending Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So when they come, don't let you be moved off of where your faith is grounded in the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. For you yourselves know we were destined... For this. 
And so what Paul is pointing out is that when one is a believer in Jesus Christ, when Jesus is central to a person's life, afflictions many times increase. There is rejection in one way or another. There may be ostracism. There may be mockery. There may be even persecution in, in some sense or another. So here are these Macedonians. They've been saved by the grace of God. They're not that well off to begin with. They face persecution. They remain poor. They get poorer as the days go by. They are afflicted, but they are overflowing with joy. Which means what? Obviously, their joy was not based on how much money they had. It wasn't based on the latest and greatest of possessions. Their joy was not based on how well they were doing in their business. Their joy was not based on, well, maybe trouble and persecution is dissipating, so we're a little more joyful with that anticipation. No, their joy is grace-produced, and it is God-centered. And out of that grace-produced, God-centered joy, they gave generously. I want to direct your attention to one more passage in this regard, and this is from the book of Hebrews chapter 10, because I want you to see these principles in, in a second passage of Scripture, namely that overflowing joy in God, even in the midst of hardship and persecution and poverty, produces always sacrificial giving and ministry to others. Here's several verses from Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. Paul write, the, the author writes this to, to his readers. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I want you to follow along these three verses. Verse 32, Paul speaks about these believers being enlightened. What does that mean? It means when they were saved, when they came to faith in Christ, when they were converted, when they became Christians. So when you were enlightened, what happened? Things got worse, Paul says. You endured a hard struggle. You endured sufferings. Notice verse 33, in a very obvious and even a public way, Paul says. But what? These Hebrew Christians, like the Macedonians, continued to joyfully live out their faith even at great cost to themselves. And notice the specific example the writer cites. Verse 33 and verse 34. Some of the Hebrew believers had been arrested and had been imprisoned because of their faith. And the question rose amongst the rest of the congregation, so what do we do? They've been arrested, they've been charged, they're in jail. So if we go visit them in jail, which we kind of know is the right thing to do, but if we go visit them in jail... If we bring them the needed supplies that would help them during their incarceration, then the authorities will know we're believers too. And who knows what will happen to us then? What will happen to our families? What about our businesses? What about our possessions? What if we get arrested? So shall we go? And the answer was, without hesitation, yes. 
Yes, we'll go. And so you notice verse 34, out of compassion, they visited and ministered to the fellow saints in prison. And what happened, verse 34, the, the writer speaks about the plundering of your property. So let's put it in modern terms. Because they identified as a Christian to minister to those in prison, the windows in their car were knocked out, their tires were slashed, their businesses were looted, and graffiti was spray-painted all over their homes. That's what happened to them. And what was their response? Oh, I knew we shouldn't have gone. I knew we shouldn't have gone. Why didn't God protect us? What does the text say? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. The writer says. Luther puts it this way in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And so you joyfully, don't miss that word, accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew you yourselves had a better possession and one that can't be taken away and one that lasts forever. See, here's what you need to understand. When your joy is in God, when Jesus Christ is your priceless treasure, when what is of lasting value cannot be taken away from you, moth and rust cannot corrupt, thieves cannot break through and steal, when you have an abiding treasure reserved in heaven for you, as Peter puts it, then you can love freely. Then you can love sacrificially. Then you can give generously. Then you find joy in all things. Which means then that if that kind of grace-centered joy doesn't mark your life, you'll not give. Or if you do, it will be meager and it will be grudging. If a grace-centered joy does not mark your life, you will not be generous. Oh, unless it benefits you in some way. If that kind of grace-centered joy does not mark your life, you'll not volunteer for, to serve. And if you do for whatever reason, you'll not minister from the heart. The Macedonians, out of affliction and great joy, gave generously above and beyond what anyone could have expected. And that's a living out of the gospel. What did God do? Well, above and beyond what anybody could expect, he gave his only son. We read that in our reading from John chapter 3. And so true Christian giving on any level is marked by a joy that transcends one's difficult circumstances. I want to close with this. I want to give you two mathematical equations on the screen. The first equation is the mathematical equation that the Corinthians used. And sadly, it's the equation most American Christians use, most Western Christians use, when it comes to giving. Here's the Corinthians equation. Here's the equation most American churchgoers use as well. It's a little addition problem. Financial stability plus things going well in my life plus having everything I want and need equals I'll give something. Maybe. That's the equation the Corinthians used. 
I want to give you a second equation. This is the one the Macedonians used. And it's one that is almost found never in our Western affluent world. But here's the Macedonians' equation. Here's the Bible equation. Grace plus deep poverty and affliction plus joy centered in God equals enthusiastic, generous, sacrificial giving. Which equation have you adopted? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit might reroute each one of us in God's grace, that He may produce in our hearts an abundance of love and joy, that fruit of His Spirit, and that each of us may relearn that lesson that Jesus taught 2,000 years ago, namely that it is indeed more blessed to give than it is to receive. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we read about the Macedonians, and we've read it many times in Scripture, but we look at it and we say, whoever does that? Who gives like that? Well, what, what kind of a group of people must they have been? I don't know anybody like that. And so, Lord, you aren't calling us to be Macedonians, but you're calling us to have the same heart and spirit and then let you prompt us what we should do when it comes to stewardship and giving and ministering in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And so, Lord, as we think about these things during this Lenten season, out of your great love for us, there is always, if we've experienced it, there is always a response of the heart. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We sing that glibly, but it's actually true. And so, Lord, as we focused during this Lenten season, we sang so many beautiful songs today about the cross, about redemption, about forgiveness. God so loved the world, we read that passage. All of that reminding us that when it comes to our response, it all must come out of you doing everything first. It must spring out of grace. It must spring out of your mercy and your abounding joy in our hearts. And so, Lord, stir that up in each one of us. All to the glory of your name we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I introduced last Sunday a tremendous hymn on giving. I know it was probably absolutely new to, to everyone who was present last Sunday, but I want us to, to, to just learn it and begin to internalize uh, some of the words of this great hymn. God whose giving knows no ending is the first line of it. You can remain seated. Let's sing this little hymn in response together. God whose giving knows no ending From your rich and endless store Nature's wonder Costly cross, great shattered door, gifted by you, we turn to you, offering up ourselves in praise. Thankful song shall rise forever, gracious donor of 
to come to the Lord's table, we come in a common faith and a common confession. If you're able to stand, I invite you to do so, and let's together confess our faith as it's found in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to them and said, Take and eat. This is My body, which is for you. This do as often as you eat of it in remembrance of Me. In the same way also, after supper, He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from this cup, each one of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Paul to the Corinthians says, The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. I'll ask our prayer team folks to come, as always. If there is a prayer need that you have, before you go back to your seat, take a moment and stop for prayer. I'll ask the servers to come. All things are now ready.
laden, come and lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you, Jesus draws you, rest in him. He is gentle, he is lowly, he delights to bring us peace, tender shepherd, mighty Savior, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us, how deep is His love, so come, come to Jesus and rest in Him. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sin. He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in Him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow, freedom calls you, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us, how, how deep is His love. So come, come to Jesus and rest in Him. Are you waiting in your sorrow for this broken world to heal? He is coming, soon returning, rest in Him. We will see, we will know Him, oh what heights of grace reveal. From His kindness, every promise then fulfilled. Trust in Jesus, He will keep us to the end. How sure His compassion for us. Oh, how deep is His love. So come, come to Jesus and rest. How sure His compassion for Come to Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, uh, as we come uh, to the end of our service, as we have sung praises, as we have 
reflected on your word as we have received of your holy sacrament. Lord, as you are preparing to send us forth for this week, we ask, Lord, that you would equip us for all that is in front of us. The scripture says we don't know what a day might bring forth. And so from our standpoint, life and future is uncertain, but it never is from your standpoint. All things are in your hands. You are sovereign and Lord over all the circumstances of life. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. Lord, uh, we think of Jordine's family. We think of Arnold and all the extended family. Mercies upon them in these days. We pray, Lord, that our service here this Thursday might bring praise to you, that Jesus Christ might be exalted, that there might be those who would be drawn to trust in the Savior, uh, even at the service this week. Continuing to remember Ardell and his family in our prayers, your continued mercies and peace be poured out upon him. Lord, uh, for others who are facing other issues in life right now, facing other struggles or questions, whatever they might be. Lord, I ask that in your mercy that you would give encouragement to each heart and that you would make a way when there seems to be no way. Thank you that you are the God of doing amazing things. Sometimes, Lord, not in spectacular ways, but you work in quietness. You work, as we might say, behind the scenes, but you accomplish all good things for our good and ultimately, Lord, of course, for your glory. And so we lift these prayers to you, thanking you for the opportunity of being here this day. And so we join our hearts together in the prayer that Jesus, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the blessing of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you. Abide in your hearts now and always. Amen. Amen.